I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Through Their Eyes, our special series featuring Utah teenagers discussing current events on Utah's Morning News with Tim and Amanda. Such a pleasure this week to have three incredible young people with me in studio that I have actually met before. This week joining me, Josh, Luke, and Heidi. Welcome back, everybody. Good to see you again. We have so many topics to go over this week that I think we should just jump right in and do as many as we have time for. And I'm going to begin with a really difficult one. Uh, Difficult for a number of reasons. One, it's just difficult. And two, uh, a lot of things are happening as we speak. So by the time this airs or someone listens, to it, things may have changed drastically, drastically. So with all that caveat, let's just jump in, Luke, and talk about Turkey moving into Syria, and then there is some sort of an agreement to stop fighting for a time that may or may not be continuing, depending on what Russia says, have I confused you yet? What, what do you think of what's going on there? <laughs> well, like you're saying, it's pretty crazy. It's all over the place. Um, I think it's really interesting, especially you know coming at it from the United States perspective, where I think the biggest issue that was brought up recently was, you know, should we keep troops there or not? And so there's a ceasefire going on, but then there's also this you know controversy back in the U.S. of you know Trump wants to pull all the troops out, and we are pulling troops out, right? Um, but then, if I remember correctly, it's it was a, a majority, I think, of Republican or not Republicans, but representatives said, "No, we want to put the troops back there and leave them there." So Republicans and Democrats, right, right, um, all over the place, all over the board. So I don't know. We'll see how that goes. I mm-hmm. guess in the coming days, especially with this ceasefire ending soon. When you see a, a country move their troops into another sovereign nation even though they may have a reason for disliking the people they're attacking, they're moving troops into another sovereign nation. What, what goes off in your mind when you see that? <laughs> well, the first you know, thing that goes off on my mind is, well, what are the consequences? What sort of precedent does this set? Um, and, you know, I think the U.S. has been a global superpower, right? But, you know, I think we've put too many troops in too many places, um, all over the world in different times in history. I honestly can't say if now is a time when we should put troops in or not. Mm. But in the past, we have overstepped our boundaries. So we might do that again if mm. we don't, you know, regulate how we keep our troops there, I guess. Mm. What do you say, Heidi? I agree a lot with what Luke's saying. I think that we've put too many troops all over the place and kind of entangled ourselves a lot with a lot of different countries and that it's broken a lot of principles and that's why it's kind of become messy because we've made alliances with so many countries that it's kind of messed everything up. And so I think that we need to be really careful with our relationships with other countries or otherwise it just keeps getting messier and messier and causes a lot of issues. Mm. When you see something like, you know, Russia moving into Ukraine and taking their territory We certainly weren't happy about that. 
Do you see any difference in your mind between Russia moving into Ukraine and taking territory and Turkey moving into Syria and taking territory? I mean, can we be against one and for the other? I I don't know all of the circumstances surrounding it, but I think in most circumstances, you just have to be really careful with your relationships with all, all of the different countries. Fair enough. Fair enough. Josh? I think this whole situation is just fascinating, both for the ramifications it has domestically and then also abroad internationally. I think at home, this has really been a highlight moment for Republicans. Are they going to stand with the president on issues of foreign policy, even when they disagree? And and no, we've seen a huge group of Republicans stand up to Trump, say, no, we don't believe that this is the right thing, that we're we're doing something wrong. We're going to put the Kurds at a disadvantaged position. We're going to erode that trust that our allies have with us. And internationally, I think it has huge ramifications as well. I mean, the Kurds are one of the largest ethnic groups in the Middle East that doesn't have their own country. There is no Kurdistan. And and maybe that's something that needs to change. I mean, this group is split over three countries. And, and the fact that Turkey is going in and, and picking on them just goes to show that maybe they need a, a more a, a place to be. Yeah. I was just reading this morning about how many thousands of people including tens of thousands of children, have been displaced since we made that decision. Now, that in and of itself doesn't mean that we, you know, because there are consequences to decisions, but that does make you pause, doesn't it? And wonder, did we do the right thing? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and that's the question I think we always have to be asking ourselves is, are we doing the right thing here? Because, Again, yeah, exactly like what you were saying. Those decisions have incredibly huge consequences for real people. Mm. Any other thoughts before we move on? It's a difficult one. Um, I'm going to move to something that is much lighter, but I'm curious as to the impressions that your generation has on this topic. I want to know, and I'll start with you on this, Heidi. Do you personally read any magazines I don't. I didn't think so. I, but I wanted to know if this was true. Because we saw this week um, the shutting down of, I think it was Family Circle magazine. But we've seen many magazines, one after another after another, shutting down, at least in print. And sometimes they'll maintain a presence online. So when we saw another magazine closing, Family Circle, I wanted to see, do you read magazines? Do you know any fr- Do you have any friends who read magazines? Not that I'm aware of. I don't see magazines being read very much. Do your parents read magazines? No. Do you think there's a place for that genre of media still, or is it just going the way of the wagon? Um, Because I don't know a lot of people that do read them, I don't know how big the audience for them is. I think a big reason that they're shutting down is because of technology and because we have so much on our fingertips already to read and access. And so I think because because of that, a lot of people have just switched to reading things online. Mm. Do you think that that will happen to books, or is there something different about books that we like to still have the book physically in our hands, and that will never be totally supplanted by the digital book? I sure hope they don't um, go all technological. I I know that there recently there's been a lot there's a lot with audiobooks and things but I think there is a different feeling when you have a book that you can hold in your hand. I definitely prefer having the book in my own hands. You're nodding in agreement, Luke. Oh, definitely. Whenever I want to read a book, I go pick it up from the library, hold it in my hands and read it, I guess. So that that the digital experience is not 
good enough for you when it comes to reading a book. Right, right. What about magazines? Do you ever read magazines? <laughs> no, not anymore. I mean, the only like magazines that I used to read was National Geographic, and we've got a ton of those in our basement. But that was just because you know we got them for free from our flyer miles, and then I looked at the pictures. But yeah, um, do do any of your friends read magazines? No, no. no. <laughs> How about your parents? No. So there are no magazines in your house except for old National Geographics, which I think every American has in their basement. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. That's interesting. But it's different for books than it is for magazines when it comes to the tangible, the physical. Yeah, and, you know, it's kind of interesting when you think about it because, you know, there's the switch between technology and books. But I think really what makes a book so special as, you know, something that's actually physical instead of online is that it keeps you more you know, engaged in the book itself when you're reading it, when you don't have stuff popping up on your phone and other things, people texting you and things like that. Because I know when I'm reading on my phone, reading the news or something like that, you know, I'll be reading an article and then something pops up. I'll go read another thing. I just keep switching and switching and switching. But a book is very consistent, I guess, on one topic. Yeah, that's part of why I love books. Over to you, Josh. Do you read magazines? I don't read magazines. Do your friends? Nope. Do your parents? My parents do not read magazines. Are there any magazines in your house then? None at all? There, I don't think there's... One time I had to do a school project, and so I subscribed to Foreign Policy, and I got one of their magazines, but that's it. So the only place you see magazines are in a doctor's office? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you have the same di- distinction? Do you make the same distinction that, that these two make when it comes to reading books, or do you enjoy them as much digitally? I, I think... Um, the, the reason why books are always going to be books and, and last longer than magazines is their timeless quality. Magazines are in an awkward place where they're trying to be up-to-date, current, kind of timely news. But um, at the same time, if you really want timely news, just open Twitter, right? Or, you know, get some sound bites. And there's plenty of that everywhere, you know, really timely information. And so I think magazines are kind of in a limbo where they're, they're uh, you know, publication that's trying to be timely, but they're not a book. And and I think that's what's making it Mm -hmm. hard for them. I hear that. All right. On to the, um, I want to ask you a question about an issue that comes up in the Democratic national debates for uh, the Democratic presidential debates, I should say, and that several of the candidates on the Democratic side talk about, well, they all talk about it, but several of them espouse something called uh, Medicare for all. But there is a question as to whether or not that is a sustainable, um, whether that's an economically sustainable proposition. When you hear them talking about Medicare for all, because the way that that this generation, that people in their 60s and 70s, the people going into the presidency and into Congress right now handle this issue will affect you in the future very much. So do you have any sense at all, or is this way too far in the future a question for you, Josh? Do you have any feelings about Medicare for all? Yeah, I mean, I think we all want to be able to say Medicare for all, but we don't want taxing, taxes for all, right? And and that's kind of the harsh reality of the situation is that it's mutually exclusive, right? You either are going to have Medicare for all um, and, high, and higher taxes or you're going to have lower taxes and, and less Medicare. And I think that's the decision we have to make here. So that's the bottom line. You get more health care, but you're taxed more or you get less health care and you're taxed less. It's just that simple. Yeah, you're not getting something for nothing. If you had to choose, which would you choose? I would choose less taxes. And less health care. Yeah. Hmm. What about for you, Luke? Um, I would choose the same. I'd say less taxes and then, you know, leave it more in the private sector because I definitely believe that 
when things are privatized, a lot of times that competition drives down prices, you know, increases local businesses and the economy and things like that. What about for you, Heidi? I would choose less taxes as well. I don't see how the system would work out super well just because it would raise taxes exponentially and it would cause a lot of economic decline for the health industry as well as for people currently on Medicare. And it also causes a lot of fraud issues because there's been a lot of fraud issues with people who are already on Medicare. And so there's just a lot of issues surrounding it. And so I don't see how it would work out. My only follow-up question for you, all of you is that I think the number one, or at least up there at the top, reason why Americans go bankrupt, and these are Americans with health insurance, are uh, that they can't afford health care, that some catastrophic problem comes up. They have a child with cancer, they're in an accident, and, and their insurance is maxed out. And under the current health care system, that puts them into bankruptcy. What do you say to that, Josh? I do think we need some sort of socialized health care plan in the United States of America. We, we do need some sort of framework for dealing with situations exactly like that, that that can potentially bankrupt people that are completely unexpected, unforeseeable, um, to prevent that from happening. However, I think as it's currently constituted, it's too broad um, and just too expensive for the American people. Hmm. What do you say to that, Luke? Well, I think, you know, I, I agree with Josh, but I think another thing that I touched upon earlier was that, you know, right now, healthcare prices, premiums are extremely expensive. Like I was looking at um, insulin prices the other yeah. day, you know, I mean, it's technically healthcare uh, medicine, right? Yeah. Crazy. But it's extremely high, super high. If and you for just some, dealt with drugs, it'd be an incredible uh, improvement. Right, right. And so, you know, if people could actually afford the things that they need, that they're prescribed, I think it would definitely help with this problem that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Thoughts, Heidi? Yeah, it's just too general of of a system to really help with that problem. I agree that that's definitely an issue we should touch on, but I don't think that this is the solution because it covers a large amount of people and just adds so much to taxes. So you think we should deal with that specific problem itself and not the entire... Um, Any other thoughts on this before I move on? Did you see this week, there was an article in The Atlantic about Senator Mitt Romney, and it included a number of interesting issues. It talked about, uh, it was talking about the liberation of Mitt Romney, how he's in a spot now where he's not really worried about re-election. He's not, he's in a place where he is free, uh, free to express himself and to do what he thinks is right without feeling uh, overly pressured by his party, by politics, by anything else. But the thing that came out of that article that got so much national attention was the fact that he had what they call, I guess, a lurker, a lurker Twitter account, a Twitter account under an alias name that he said he used so he could follow people politically, so he could follow his nieces and nephews, so that the whole world wouldn't know who he's following. Um that made enormous national news. Luke, what do you think about the fact that he had the account, the fact that that made such enormous, I guess, world news? What do you say about that? <laughs> well, I think, you know, first of all, it's just such a funny thing to see in the news, especially for somebody of that stature, just because it's something that, you know, all of us can feel and, and you know, sympathize with a little bit. Because, you know, somebody who's up on on the public stage all the time being looked at and everything they do is scrutinized and looked through and and put in the news. In fact, you know, it makes them less active and less likely to 
you know, actually converse with people, in fact, because of they're afraid of saying something wrong or following the wrong person. What sort of implications? Or liking that have? a tweet. They can't do anything right. under their real name. Right, right. But I just like this because, you know, every now and then some of us will go and, you know, there's somebody that we want to go follow or look at and we'll go online and look through their history and stuff like that. But, you know, there's not, you know, the world looking at us. but. Right. You can feel that for Mitt Romney, especially. Somebody told me this week that everybody under 40 has a Lurker account. Do you think that's true? <laughs> I don't think everyone does, but I think everyone has those tendencies, at least, every now and then. To want to be free as they can only be under a name other than their own. Yeah, not accountable, I guess. What I don't like about it, though, Josh, is that it implies that there's some nefarious reason for doing it. Um, do you think it implies something negative as opposed to just implying something free? Yeah, I think... Well, I don't know. When I when I first read the art and saw kind of the public reaction to, oh, you know, Mitt Romney has this lurker account, I was more surprised that everyone else was surprised. Oh. I was just, oh. I was more like, oh, you know, of, of course you'd want to do that to kind of maintain your personal life and to, uh, you know. Is that a generational difference? Is that because that's your reaction <laughs> because that's your age and everyone, you get it. And in our age group, we don't get it. Do you think that's a generational response? I think it could be. I'm not. I'm not exactly sure, though. I just think that. Um, I I do think that Mitt Romney is liberal. I think uh, it goes to show that he's he's starting to care less, yeah, because of his situation about what other people think. And I think that's a good thing. I think he's been able to stand up for things he believes in more because of that. Interesting, Heidi. What do you think? I was also surprised that people were so shocked by it, and I probably is a generational thing. At the same time. Part of the reason I was surprised is because as I was reading articles on it, it's not something that's new. And a lot of political people have political candidates or presidents have done it in the past. And also even James Madison and John Jay had an alias for the Federalist Papers. I think everybody has the desire to stay anonymous so that they can get their points across because of prejudices that people sometimes have. What a fascinating thing to bring up. That's interesting. Any other thoughts on, on this? Actually, yeah, just upon that a little bit, you know, it's interesting you say that because that anonymity can be super positive or super negative, right? If Mitt Romney had this alias account and was posting, you know, racist memes or something like that, you know, there's something that he should be accountable for and wouldn't be. But really it can go both ways depending on the person. And people do use it, as we well know. And the power of it is huge in both directions, and unfortunately exactly. too often in the negative direction. That's an important point. Um, I saw an interesting article this week that I wanted to get your reaction to, and that is the woman who created the hashtag MeToo um, th- that we all know started a movement across the country of, of listen to women who have spoken out, uh, that they too were harassed, that they too were um, sexually assaulted. She's now created what she calls, she's launched hashtag Me Too Voter. She wants uh, people in politics to realize these people, this movement is, a, we are now a voting block. So pay attention. Is this a good thing, Josh? I'm going to start with you. Uh, I think um, I don't know when I when I read the when I read the article, the 
the thing I thought was, well, I don't think it's in the debates because I don't think it's debatable. I don't think there's people that necessarily disagree with this group of peace people. I think the vast majority of Americans agree that sexual harassment in whatever form, wherever it is, is a terrible thing, that we should take actions to prevent that. And because it's so – it's so the position is just so widely adopted by the American public already – I don't know if this is a different voting block. I don't think we have to do anything different to appeal to these people than we do to the American – because, again, this is a position that we all hold. That's interesting. What do you say, Heidi? It's a, I feel like it's a really difficult po- topic when it comes to the right to privacy because I value the, the character of my leaders a lot. But at the same time, I also value the right to privacy and to not feeling like they're forced into talking about issues that they don't want to talk about. I think that we should respect anybody's right to remain silent. But at the same time, I think this is something that a lot of people care about and that we should be talking about and that should be discussed in the. Do you think that um, when a person runs for office, their personal life, their character becomes a legitimate issue for us to know about? And so therefore they waive their privacy to a certain extent? I think to a certain extent, somebody's right to privacy is in a way that a, that a person up. who does not run for office would yes, not have. Just waived. because the, everybody in the public begins to care more about their character, but at the same time, I believe that the right to privacy is a human right that cannot be taken away and that shouldn't be forced away from somebody. If there's obviously a huge issue going on and they're going to go to court, if they need to go to court for something, that's going to be something that, regardless of whether or not they're in the public sector is going to be talked to in mm-hmm. court, but it shouldn't be they shouldn't be thought of as guilty before something comes up i feel the tug there i feel the tug what, what do you say luke about the uh yes about the, the uh, whatever however you want to comment on this me too voter movement i think first of all i'm happy that people are concerned about voting you know and that people are getting out to vote that's something that's really important on a bipartisan scale. If you care about politics and you have something that you want to go vote about, please go vote about it because it helps everyone. Um, as for you know the movement specifically, honestly, you know I don't want to pretend like I know everything about it. Um, I have really not a lot of thoughts on you know how it will affect it because, like Josh was saying, it seems like something that most people agree with. Um, but again, it's something that's great for people to get out and vote. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you on that. All right. Um, yes, please. Oh, just one more thing, too. I think the bigger thing that we're risking here is hyper-partisanship, where we just have so many different factions of so many groups of people that all want to be voting blocks. And if we all are, uh, I think that that is incredibly concerning. Uh, we shouldn't all be floater. We're just Americans at the end of the day, right, regardless of what voter block we're in, um, right, in quotation marks. So, um we should just all be, you know, um, you know, voters, right? And I don't think we need to define ourselves by what makes us different. I love that. I love that. Um, I remember when I was teaching at the university years ago, I used to talk to the, um, the students back then and tell them, you are the largest demographic in the nation right now. If you used your power, and I'm talking to you as a demographic, so this is by age group, you could swing anything, um, but you're not voting as a group. And so that's why the the, the um, candidates aren't coming to this campus to speak to you, because they're not interested in you because you're not making them be interested in you. Because y- they know you're not going to vote, but you could require 
them to be interested in your issues if you voted in mass, which is so true for uh, young people. If they voted as soon as they turned 18, it would, it would change everything. Um, enough lecturing. All right, let's see. The, I was just curious about this because I read this article about people Googling as soon as they start to feel an ache or a pain. And this is probably more, more relevant to people my age. As soon as we feel something, we Google. But this article said this is sort of a good thing. I, I just wondered, at your age, if anything happens, you, you feel an itch, you feel a scratch, you got a little pain, something, you know, in, in gym class didn't. Do you go on Google and, and find and look this stuff up? Do you do that, Luke? You know, actually, me personally, no. Um, but that's because I have someone in the medical field at my house, so I just go ask my mom oh, usually. you have a doctor in the house? Oh, um, okay. But, you know, I can definitely understand it. You know, the internet as you know, the common perception goes is the source of all knowledge, whether it's, you know, true or not. But um, I thought it was interesting that this is something that's backed by, you know, doctors and, you know, professionals in the field are all putting these things online. And those are the things that people are going to instead of, you know, I guess, internet forums that are far out there with random, you know, medical (laughs) symptoms, I guess. Has your mom ever said anything about patients coming to her with, I saw this on Google, D- has she ever said anything about that being a source of frustration or a, a positive source? You know, she hasn't mentioned that specifically, yeah. but I would expect that that's definitely something that, you know, could come out of it. I mean, yeah. she's a, an, an occupational therapist. So oh. She works with a lot of people who are, you know, older or disabled in some right, way. And so right. I bet, you know, they've been on Google a lot looking at these sorts of things, how to gain movement back and um all that sorts of right. things, I guess. I remember when my youngest son was diagnosed with uh, a genetic disorder. The doctor actually said to me, now, don't go Google this. Like, I was not going to go Google this. Anyway, uh, <laughs> what, any thoughts on this article at all, Heidi? Um, I think it's interesting because it was really funny when I saw saw this question or, or with this question just because I totally do sometimes. Do and you? I'm not – If it's not all the time. It's about probably half the time if I'm not feeling good at all and I'm trying to figure out what I should do to feel better, then I'll definitely do a quick search just to see what I can do so that I don't feel sick anymore. Like, does, is this something I have to go to the doctor for or can I just uh, <laughs> take something over the counter? That's interesting. What about for you, Josh? I Google stuff all the time, especially probably, you know, when I'm like, oh, I might have something or I might have caught a cold or something. I'll, I'll go and Google the symptoms and try to self-diagnose myself. Huh? And I think that's a great thing. I think that's something that should be encouraged. Um, I think it's great now that we have medical knowledge that for most of human history was was only, you know, wasn't available or was only available in institutions of higher learning is now available to everyone. I think that's a great thing. We should encourage that. I love that, too. Um, I want to ask you this question, and it came up in the most interesting way. Did you happen to see that Ellen DeGeneres uh, thing where she she talked to her audience? At, so she went to the a Dallas Cowboys football game and she sat next to uh, President Bush, uh, 43. And then people gave her a hard time that she actually sat next to uh, President George W. Bush. And so then she came out and did a beginning of her show and said, people, we need to be friends with people who we don't actually agree with on every single subject. What is the when I say be kind to people, I mean, be kind to everybody. And so it reminded me that at the end of I think it was toward the end of the Democratic debate, they started talking, the different uh, candidates, about people they were friends with on the other side of the aisle. And I can't, one of them said they were, he said, I'm friends with uh, Senator Mike Lee. You might be surprised to hear that. <laughs> I thought, that's fantastic. Do you have any friends, Heidi, with whom you would say you disagree strongly, politically or in some other way? For sure. I definitely do. 
I really loved Ellen's response to all the criticism and how she talked about that. And I think a stereotype of our generation is not having opinions or not staying up to date on current events. And I actually think that the disagreements between people is a main cause, is a leading cause for this issue. Because I was in a class the other day, it wasn't even a political class, but politics came up, and a bunch of kids started saying, oh, I'm politically neutral, I don't want to talk about this, I don't have an opinion, because they assumed that there was going to be fighting if we started talking about politics. And they said, I just don't have an opinion on current events because then, because of that. And I think that that's a reason that people tried what they try that they try to not stay informed but to me it doesn't really matter what my friends political opinions are as long as they're staying informed and they're creating those opinions and being involved can you discuss then with do you feel like you can say i feel this way or ask them how they feel without having an argument is that possible it definitely depends on the group of friends that i'm i'm with but i feel like with some of my friends People are really sensitive about some political mm. issues or they don't want to talk about it because they assume that automatically means there's going to be oh, an argument. That's too bad. We need to move past that. What do you say, Luke? It's, you know, this is a really interesting topic, partly for the reason um, that, you know, okay, <laughs> I guess I have to take a step back and say that I think when you disagree with somebody, I think especially with my friends, it's best to have you know, to connect with them in a lot of different ways. And I think for you to, like, effectively disagree with them and still be respectful about it and still be friends with them and strengthen your relationship afterward, I think it's super important that you connect with them in other ways. And so instead of, like, you know, going up to somebody and immediately starting into, I disagree with you on this, right, because that's all of the connection that's between you, start, you know, a conversation with them, connect with them on a few things, and then move to, you know, what you disagree with them with. Because then you have, you still have a bond that's linking you. You have common ground that you can move from to the things you disagree with and then move back to that common ground and still be friends about it. I mean, that's, that's what I do with my friends, I think. Brilliant. And do, they, do you sense that they feel heard, feel respected? I think so. I mean, I'm more willing to listen to them if I know them, if I know them as a friend and have a relationship with them or, you know, mm. something like that. Mm. What do you say, Josh? If you're only friends with the people that agree with you, then how much are your friendships actually worth? I don't think that there's any person in this nation that is too good, too intelligent, or too politically savvy to not have a relationship with somebody. And I think those relationships, far from being based on what we share, what you have in common with your friends, um, should just be based out of a, a place of love, you know, and care and regard for that person. I don't think that's a, that has anything to do with opinions or, or politics or, or anything like that. Curiosity. You know, I, I tell my kids, because I remember when my, my youngest son was a little younger, uh, might have been a couple of years ago, might have been in the beginning of the 2016 election, and he would come home and, and say, is Hillary Clinton a bad person, Mom? Or he'd say, is Donald Trump a bad person? He had heard something like this at school, and it would prompt a really interesting conversation with this then eight or nine-year-old, whatever he was at the time, because he felt hurt. He doesn't want to hate anybody, but he had heard really hard language against one or the other at school. And so we'd start to talk about what the bases might have been for some of these accusations. And so so I tried to give him language that he could talk, that he could say, why do you feel? I always ask the follow-up question, 
Aiden. Ask them, why do you feel that way? They probably don't know. But that would give them a good way to go home to their mom and dad and say, why do you hate Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? Mom and dad, explain. So let's see if we can get some explanation that doesn't just stop at, they stink or I hate, and and some sort of dialogue. How does that sound? Does that sound like a good beginning point? Some dialogue. And maybe that's even helpful for eight or nine-year-olds as it is for 19, 20, 21-year-olds. What do you think? I think that would be great. And I think some people might be disappointed. The people that they hate and they abhor are actually just normal people that are trying to figure out life, too. Yes. Yes. Okay. I know the time is running out. Um, Before it's completely gone, I want to ask you, may I ask you a sort of personal question? And if this is too personal, you just send me, I'm mad if this is too personal and we can move right along. But I want to understand dating for teenagers in Utah, which I understand is completely different than it was in the dark ages when I dated. Um, Can you help me understand um, what dating is like? The, maybe the good parts of dating, the challenges of dating. Describe it to me in, in any way you want to. May I impose on you, Josh, and start with you? What is dating like for you? That's a good question. I think there's not really a short answer. I think dating is like whatever you want to make it. You know, if you want to date a lot of people and, and do that, and then then you're totally available to do that. You can. You can make that happen. If you don't want to date people, you similarly have that freedom. So I think there's a lot more but individual what is a, choice. what does date mean? I mean, do you like go out to a movie and, and, and dinner like, like we did it when I dated? I mean, a date was he called or asked me at school to go out to something. We went out to something and then he dropped me off back at home. Does that happen? Yeah, and I, and I think that's still the expectation too, right? That you, you know, it's kind of your job to go into, you know, if you're the guy to go in and to ask a girl out, right? And make that happen to plan everything and do an activity. Um, but I think I, that's my circles. And I think there's a lot of different opinions. And, you know, I think it's incredibly varied. And it really just depends on the people, you know, what they were raised with, what what their friends are doing too. That, that matters a lot. See, because I heard, Luke, that you could have an entire relationship on via text and, and never even have an actual date, and that would be considered dating with your generation. Is that true? I think, um, you know, I don't know if, if you could consider that technically dating, but, you know, <laughs> okay, for our generation, okay, you know, calling is the next step, right? And then, like, FaceTiming would be the next step after that. So I think... If you, you could technically say that if you're texting somebody and then you're calling them and then you'd FaceTime them, right? You could probably consider that um, a date or a relationship or something. Even if you never went anywhere. Right. I mean, at least in this culture. Who knows, you Mm -hmm. know? So, especially because you're so busy all the time. I know kids are so busy. They have so many different things going on. So that you might really just have somebody who you text a lot. And you'd say you're going out with that person because you text them a lot and they're your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever because you text. Is that an accurate description? I think, yeah, that feeds into, you know, the idea that person who's your boyfriend or girlfriend is probably someone who's you're going to, you know, communicate with a lot. And if you've got a text conversation going with them, if you're FaceTiming them at night, if you're, you know, you know, even texting them on Instagram or something like that. Um, right. Yeah. Maybe definitely. you sit with them at lunch at school and then you text them for hours in the evening. Heidi, that's a relationship, right? Um, or no? I don't know if you would call it dating, but I guess, I don't know. Okay, I'm asking too. I'm sorry, this is an awkward question, but no, I'm just truly just, trying to wrap my brain around it. I don't know if you would call it like a date, but I definitely think there can be relationships formed online, especially with the access that we have to technology now. 
Because I know, you know, some of the kids in my, I have a ninth grader, and he talks about, you know, friends of his who have girlfriends, I'm, I'm doing air quotes, they've never gone anywhere, they don't drive, they don't have a car, and their parents don't take them. The entire relationship is based on Instagram, and texting and sitting together at lunch. That's it. But that's considered to them a relationship. Is that does that make sense? And then only when you become 16, then you start going on dates. See, parents listening right now are trying to understand this, too. We're trying to wrap our brains around it. Um, I mean, for me, dating has been just going out with a group of friends and then playing games together at a park or just going out with lots of different people um, and just having a good time with each other and getting to know each other better. But I know that for a lot of people in my generation, it could be over text or just do you want to go out with me equals do you want to be my boyfriend or girlfriend and they actually don't end up so what's the challenge for your generation in having access to text and instagram etc like is does it present a challenge does anything come to mind when i say that you can't get away from this person how do you get away from this person (laughs) that's true yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, I didn't have a phone f- until I was 18 years old, and I think that was good for me <laughs> in a lot of ways, because I, I don't know, I just really wasn't exposed to that and to that world, and, you know, while I was going through that, I think I thought that was pretty terrible, right? That, oh, you know, I can't, I can't communicate with people, and it's so frustrating, but um, in the end, I think it, it made me value, actually, the relationships I did have more, because they meant more. There was, there was a, the level of commitment that was required to have them was was more mm. I, you know it wasn't just a matter of text so i think um you know those those can be challenges i think those relationships aren't really with that level of commitment i don't know if you can really call that a relationship and so i think that skewing of that uh, that idea of like what a what a relationship actually looks like um you know it's hard to know if kids are playing around or if that's just actually what they think it is and if they actually think that's what it is then i think that is concerning i think that's a problem and yet you can get to know someone quite well i would imagine if you're having conversations with them for a long period of time even via text or am i assuming more than i should look yeah i mean you definitely get to know somebody extremely well yeah um you know and to go back and talk a little bit about what you mentioned earlier was that you couldn't get away from that person right yeah. um it's really interesting you say that because I am terrible at responding, especially via text or calling someone, right? But if someone is there and I'm talking with them, you know, if they're in person, I'll definitely engage with them because I've set aside time to be with them, right? But, you know, in the past, um, when I haven't responded to people, sometimes it takes me a day or so or day and a half, you know, sometimes two days will go by before I, you know, think about it enough to respond, um, it it seems to the other person like I'm just ignoring them or something like that. Like if I was standing face to face to them and saying, no, I'm not going to talk to you. Like I don't like you or something. That violates some unwritten rule of texting that you've blown them off when that's not your intention right. at all. Not yeah. at all. See, you have, you have problems you have to deal with that I didn't have to deal with. Any other thoughts you want to share on this topic? Thank you for letting me ask those personal questions. That's just something I've, I, I and I think other parents have wanted to understand. You three are wonderful. I know you lead busy lives. Would you please come back and visit me again and do this with me some other time?